You're listening to Mud-Spattered Philosophy, an attempt to salvage academic thought from too much seriousness. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Elisa Torres and I'm joined today by Alex Neff. That's me. I'm Alex Neff. <laughs> and uh, it's just the two of us today and we're uh, going to be talking about Aristotle's... Just the two of us. <laughs> Aristotle's work, Just the Two of Us. Famous piece by the pop star singer. <laughs> Aristotle. Exactly. Okay. No, we're going to be talking about Aristotle's Nick McKean ethics. Uh, a particular problem kind of zooming in here because... A problem work, we invented. A problem? No, no, it's a real problem Aristotle talks about. This is what academics are supposed to do. They're supposed to invent problems. Where they don't exist. Right. <laughs> Alex has the problem of tapping on the table with a pen. Mm -hmm. I just (laughs) invented that problem again. Exactly. So yeah, Aristotle seems to um, come up with a problem with the way he is describing virtue. Because, as we know, first he says that, um, or at least at some point, he makes a very important claim that virtue is pleasant to the virtuous man. It's a distinguishing mark. And then later, he comes across the topic of courage. Of courage. And it seems like courage inherently has some pain to do with it. Right. So is there a problem? Right. This is the supposed tension. But before, before getting into the, the text itself, I think uh, you know, Aristotle does, when he first opens the ethics, he mentions... Some uh, some virtues kind of briefly, and then he will go into more depth about each virtue. So he does, uh, he, he kind of talks about pleasure and pain associated with virtue in a more general way. And I think there is a lot of confusion about um, the plain, the plain, the pain and pleasure associated with virtue. Uh, and Aristotle is aware that his audience might be confused in that regard. Uh, it's certainly the case that when virtue is discussed today, there's much confusion about um, whether or not we should feel uh, pleasure in performing virtue. And, um, and so maybe I'll just give one example to kind of fill you guys in on, on the, the tension and the problem and confusion that you all are probably already aware of. So I... Uh, Whenever I teach Aristotle's ethics, and I've not taught it several times, I haven't taught it very often, um, but maybe a handful of times, and I'll, I'll be discussing virtue, and I'll often open up with a scenario just to kind of get um, people thinking about their preconceptions of what virtue is. Mm-hmm. So I did that, you know, Alex and I taught at Bowman Abbey College this summer, and we did uh, kind of test this question out on, on the kids during the the Scola uh, camps that they they hold there. And this is basically the scenario. And I actually borrowed this from uh, Professor John Cuddeback from Christendom College in his uh, course on Aristotle's ethics. He kind of opens up with this scenario, and I just find it very helpful. So he he says, pretend there are two men in a grocery store who come across a a wallet on on separate occasions. And uh, one of the men, the first man, uh, he 
picks up the wallet and he looks inside and sees, you know, a wad of cash in there. And instantly he returns the wallet and he feels pleasure in doing so. And he actually is, is so glad that he was the one to come across this wallet because uh, he takes joy and delight um, in returning things. And because and his name is Ned Flanders. Exactly. <laughs> it explains everything. Um, that's not true. Go on. <laughs> and so, so that's, that's our first man, our first example. The next man uh, comes across the wallet and he sees a wad of, he sees the wad of cash in the wallet, opens it up, and he knows that returning the wallet is the right thing to do. But he kind of struggles, right? He's got all this debt that he has to pay, and this would really come in handy. So he goes back and forth between, you know, the things that he could buy with this money or the debt that he could pay off. Uh, but finally, he resolves to return the wallet. Uh, and so looking, looking from the security camera, it would appear as if these men performed exactly the same action. Uh, and at this point, I usually w- will ask uh, the students, who they think is the more virtuous man. And I would say the biggest audience I've tried this on, I think there were maybe a hundred students listening and only two students thought that Mm. the man who immediately Mm. returned the wallet was more virtuous. Mm. Everyone else thought that the more virtuous man was the man who struggled uh, with the decision. And so this is also, I mean, this is not just Kant, right? Who is kind of, um, kind of influenced our way of thinking in, in regard well, to explain what you mean by that. This okay. It's not just Kant. No, you're okay. I was going to bring in mm-hmm. Maimonides, but that is not helpful until I mm-hmm. draw out the problem here. So at, at that point, what I, um, you know, what I asked the kids and this is, I bring in another, a, a few more analogies, um, before, you know, introducing a problem, right? So I'll, I'll bring in the analogy of, uh, the piano player, and whether or not we think that um, is it the piano player who really suffers through playing um, for Elise, who is the better piano player, or is it the one whose fingers move across the keys smoothly and does not feel pain in playing the song? Uh, who would we say is the better piano player? And at that point... That is given that both of them, according to the listener, sound exactly the that's same. That's right. That's right. If that is... Feasible. If that's feasible. Right. This is very high. And we're also supposed to think that what's going on in some manner with the two people who return the wallet is exactly the same, mm-hmm. other than that one feels pain. Right. At doing so. Right. And the other feels pleasure. This is, yeah, exactly. A kind of a very rigged analogy. <laughs> but no. the, the circumstances of their life are the same. Right. Uh, Etc. So why might we think as do many people, mm-hmm. that the person who feels displeasure or a lack of pleasure at doing the right thing mm-hmm. is better than the one that does it Well, pleasure. I, so I will, I'll go on to ask the kids why they've, they've thought that. Uh-huh. And a lot of them begin to associate virtue with uh, doing the more painful thing. So virtue is a That's struggle. That's why. Yeah, they, they were just like it's more painful. I know it's good. It's it's more painful and it's good, right? It's that combination, right? Uh, and so I, you know, I I think there might be a confusion, right? Is is the pleasurable? Is the man who receives pleasure in doing the virtuous act 
uh, merely doing the virtuous act because, oh, he just likes doing this kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Or is he doing it because he he knows it's good uh, Mm -hmm. because it, it is a good thing to do? And that's it's more clear in the person who struggles that he's doing it because he knows it's good. Does that make sense? Right, right. Or at least it seems that way. It could be because he fears not doing the good thing. I mean, there's a lot. Yeah. There's We're skipping essentially two whole books of the <laughs> Nicoethics yeah. uh, that analyzes every single detail that goes into a virtuous action, Yeah. which asking whether it's pleasure, pleasurable or painful is really mm-hmm. one component, on it, but an important one. Right. So, um, well, right. and we'll and get into some of those, some yeah. of those things, but the gist of it is that people tend to think that doing the right thing, even, uh, and even painfully so shows how much you care about doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. That makes you better. Whereas if you just do it, you know, willy nilly because you like doing good things, it seems, uh, I don't know, perhaps mm-hmm. somehow more superficial, Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe that if that person just happened to like exactly doing the bad thing, then that's what they would right. do. Right. And so, as you can see, this already this dichotomy already shuts off considerations about well, what is the object of pleasure and displeasure in mm-hmm. each case? Yeah, because that and totally affects whether either of them is doing something good or bad. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think the the question is supposed to be somewhat lacking that kind of information yeah, right uh-huh, uh-huh. you know and it's it's, it's a, a thought kind of, thought stimulator exactly thought. It, and the important thought thing is that experiment. it starts it's kind of a subtle way for me to get at the question of mm-hmm. what do we think virtue is uh because that right. what, what the naturally ensues from that that story is people start using virtue in all sorts of ways that contradict one another. Sure. Uh, and then we, we, and we don't naturally, we don't think of virtue. Um, so maybe I should finish up the piano playing story, right? So I'll follow it up with the piano playing analogy and then I'll kind of ask them the question, right? Because at this point, a lot of people are already changing their mind, right? They're saying, well, it seems that the piano player who can kind of just glide her fingers through the, the keys without pain seems to be better, ha- acquired a, a, the skill of piano playing to a higher extent than the one who is still kind of suffering through playing. Um, and so I give them this last example, which is... Uh, is it better for, let's say, a son uh, to do hi- do what his mother asks him to do, to act as if he loves his mother, but interiorly just kind of despises her, can't stand being in her presence, uh, but externally he acts just like his brother, let's say, who... Uh, not only asks or not only acts in such a way that um, shows that he loves his mother, but actually does sh- love his mother, right? So that his interior disposition does map on to th- the way that he behaves. So you're saying like some uh, a child doing something right out of obedience versus doing it right out of love for... Yeah, exactly. The mother or yeah, something Yeah, that could have like been that. said a lot more simply. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And... Mm-hmm. And that, that also gets people to kind of pause and reassess what they had been saying previously about the two men that came across the wallet, right? Right. Because it seems kind of natural to say, well, it's probably better that you, 
do what your mom tells you to do because you love her, right? Because it's actually seeing the joy in her, her face, right? When you take out the trash or clean your room actually brings you joy as well, rather than having this kind of begrudging, right? Right. And this just really begins to get uh, an entire difference between even what Aristotle was talking about when he's talking about the whole entire subject of the book, Mm -hmm. the ethics, is not exactly what anyone nowadays or or just generally would think when we say ethics, um, acting rightly, mm-hmm. um, because we tend to think of moral systems and, and laws and moral maxims. And um, Aristotle's treatment of virtue is much more psychological and it has to do with goodness as not just an object or some truth about reason that tells us what is good, but as a, as a quality or aspect of the person who does good things, his character, and the nature of the activity and the many activities that constitute and grow character. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's one reason, initially, I think, why people can get thrown off is because we tend to think, more modernly about uh, acting right and wrong. And in some sense, more conventionally. We think maybe more about law because maybe a lot of people don't believe in some kind of objective moral truth. Right. Um, And, you know, even the way in which Aristotle does is complicated, but he he certainly does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, exactly. There's there's this kind of externality to to virtue when we in the kind of modern conception that there are these kind of conventional things that prevent us from killing each other and, uh, just completely giving into our, our passions. Uh, whereas Aristotle locates virtue in something natural and interior. Right. Um, and it's about the whole purpose of life is in a sense to be virtuous, which is another difference between us is we tend to immediately think about, virtue or doing the right thing as something compartmentalized Mm -hmm. as some aspect of life. Mm -hmm. Whereas there is, you know, you know, enjoying life. And then there's also making sure you do the right thing, pay your taxes or whatever. And this is not what Aristotle is talking about because to be virtuous is to live out one's teleology Mm -hmm. to, to satisfy the end for which one exists Mm -hmm. um, in the first place. So, right. So that's kind of the context of, of the problem of virtue, uh, and a lot of the misconceptions associated with what are the pleasures and pains surrounding this activity. Uh, so at this point, you know, a lot of the students are, they, they come to realize that there's something, uh, in discord with how they have been, um, considering virtue, right? And I won't go into to the long discussion that, that we usually will end up going down. But I do want to point out um, how Aristotle is aware of this. And he's aware of, you know, in the very beginning of, uh, well, I suppose, book two. I'll read a little passage just to kind of provide some, uh, some of the framework of, of the question of courage that we'll be getting into more explicitly here. Uh, so this is, let's see. Book two, chapter three, the, the very beginning there. Let me just read this, this paragraph. 
But we must take someone's pleasure or pain following on his actions to be a sign of his state. For if someone who abstains from bodily pleasures enjoys the abstinence itself, he is temperate. If he is grieved by it, he is intemperate. Again, if he stands firm against terrifying situations and enjoys it, or at least does not find it painful, he is brave. If he finds it painful, he is cowardly. For virtue of character is about pleasures and pains. So, and Aristotle does this kind of quite often, where he'll set out this uh, preliminary discussion of pleasure and pain, and then he'll kind of discuss later on the ambiguities or make further distinctions. And so right right now, there's just kind of this general understanding of, of pleasure and pain and how these are indicative of someone's state, right? Their, their state in virtue. So you get the kind of, um, this is later on in the work, but just a kind of hierarchy to, to think of here. So, and uh, Alex, I was, I was about to call you Aristotle. <laughs> <laughs> um, correct me where I uh, might be wrong here. So you have the virtuous man who who does what is good, who knows and who knows what he is doing is good, uh, and who has pleasure in the good that he's doing. Then you have right beneath him the continent man, which falls short of the virtuous man, and he does what is good. He knows that it is good. But he doesn't find pleasure in, in the good that he does. Underneath him, you have the incontinent man who does not do what is good, even though he knows the good, or at least knows what is good in this situation. And, and he certainly doesn't take delight in it. And then you have the vicious man underneath him who does not do the good, does not know the good, and does not take pleasure in it. And then you have mm-hmm. even lower than that, right, which is the kind of beast-like man. Right. Um, Someone genuinely depraved of their right, humanity. Right. <laughs> right. Um, who, if for that reason, is is hardly even blameworthy right. for what they do. Right. Um, so you might think of someone who is totally insane mm-hmm. um, or has not been... Raised in a human community and, you know, intellectually disabled in some manner. Right. Happy thoughts. Does things that are so-called immoral. But um, <laughs> anyways, we're not so, focusing on them. We're focusing really on probably those first two. Right. That first difference between the virtuous man and the continent man. That's right. And um, And what we're looking at then is, to repeat what you said, somebody... Knows what's good, likes what's good, and does what's good. Mm-hmm. You've and got the kind of that, three parts of the soul working there. Beneath that, we have somebody who uh, knows what's good and does what's good, but doesn't like doing it. That's right. And we say it's this generally, but we really should be talking about particular actions, because that's the way Aristotle is usually usually talking about that's where this uh you know the the distinction comes about in the conversation of discussion of temperance i believe yeah the sphere of virtue though is is in particular actions mm-hmm. and whether you have character comes up out of out of that it isn't some uh state that is crowned on you after 
you know, that's right. outside of mm-hmm. what you do every day. That's really what it is and what mm-hmm. it comes out of. But, mm-hmm. um, and anyways, there are more dimensions to, mm-hmm. uh, virtue than, than the way this little hierarchy has put things. Um, and I think for one, because the way in which we take pleasure, the way, the kind of pleasure also has, mm-hmm. has something to say. That's right. But we're just going to focus on these, the difference between the virtuous and the continent person, right? Well, uh, certainly in, uh, in regard to that, the scenario I set up between the two men and the wallet, we do see there that distinction between the, the man who does what is right, who knows what is right, but he doesn't delight in it, right? And to, for Aristotle, he would be, he wouldn't be virtuous. Right, and that would be justice, some form of justice. Sure, exactly. Rendering what in is due. Case. Yeah. The piano thing kind of doesn't work because it's yeah. not necessarily a moral act. It's more of a techne, according to Aristotle. Exactly. But it still brings out the point. Yeah, and, yeah. We'll, and we'll kind of discuss a little bit yeah. the difference between um, virtue and right and and other perfections in mm-hmm. the soul mm-hmm. um, later. So, but uh, I wanted to move now to so we have again. Aristotle is saying here that when uh, Aristotle talks about pleasures and pains, I think there there is the kind of um, nat- natural pleasures and pains that the virtuous man uh, both takes delight in and feels pain in, right? So hmm. the uh, and maybe we can give some examples of that, right? So that the how do we know the state of of someone's soul, as as Aristotle is saying, right? To that pleasure and pain. Well, he says, right, it's a, a sign. sign of state, right? A sign. Um, and so we can uh, we can point to okay. So what does the virtuous man take pleasure in? And that that indicates to us both what what is naturally pleasurable, um, but then we can also look at without the direction of coming into it from the man, right? We can look at, well, what is naturally pleasurable? Um, and then we would say, well, the virtuous man would take right. pleasure in that. And that's a kind of complex loop. Because is, yeah. for Aristotle, um, in one sense, he, at certain places, seems to admit that there are things that are just absolutely good, and we can know that that's true. On the other hand, I think in a more deep and articulated way, the standard for what is virtuous are the kind con- is what the good man delights, yeah, exactly. <laughs> takes pleasure in. It's, yeah. So, um, all, and at the same time, whether we can ask whether someone takes pleasure or not is, it gives us a sign of whether they actually have virtue. But that assumes we know that the thing that they're take pleasure, taking pleasure in or not, right. <laughs> they should or shouldn't be. Um, but anyway, so maybe one way to make this more simple is that Aristotle talks about what is pleasant by nature and what he means by that is that when a uh, person is in some kind of correct state and um, sort of moral interior arrangement um, then the things that they take delight in Mm -hmm. uh, are truly in the objects in of themselves delightful Mm -hmm. and and one of the examples he gives is the way in which a a sick person, like, like physically sick, um, will take pleasure in certain, um, tastes and, Mm. um, and, and foods that a healthy man wouldn't, but in his sickness, uh, 
for whatever reason, maybe because the body's trying to get the person to take something curative, Mm -hmm. which, you know, the, the healthy person doesn't need something curative. So the sick man takes pleasure in curative pleasures, Uh, but those aren't by nature pleasant because if once he gets healthy, um, you know, he doesn't want the chicken noodle soup anymore. Maybe (laughs) chicken noodle soup is pretty good. Um, you know, I kind of think about, you know, people who have like mineral deficiencies sometimes can like crave soil or paint, but nobody like who's healthy. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Because some of these things have those minerals in them. Um, well, and so, sorry, right. You know, this whole thing about pleasant by nature is also underlying that is Aristotle's metaphysics and what we might call his natural teleology. Yeah. Um, wherein uh, things that come about by nature, inclu- including the aspects of our soul and our and of our psyche, right, which includes, for instance the uh, faculties by which we feel pleasure or the faculties by which we experience the joy of honor or the faculty mm. by which we experience the delight in truth. Right. Um, so you might say for Aristotle that, you know, when those faculties are healthy, the objects that they delight in are also c- correct. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, a healthy mind enjoys things that, um, are of health. That is to say true. Yeah. So, well, okay. So that, that was a kind of long, uh, overview of, of the pleasure that the virtuous man takes, takes delight in. Um, but the, the flip side to that too, is that he also feels pain at what is naturally painful. Um, and so this is, this is where I'm saying that there's, seems to be some kind of problem or tension, which I don't think is really in Aristotle, but can arise um, at a quick glance. So, I mean, I think it's really, he mentions it. He mentions it, as right. As an issue, but he yeah. deals with it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'll put it this way. So on one hand, we have um, the, the virtuous man is pleased by, by what is naturally pleasant, right? Um, and so virtue is one of these things that is naturally pleasant to the virtuous man. And so we might look at now in this, this example, courage, right? It would seem that courage is pleasant to the virtuous man because, because courage, because courage, is, courage a virtue. is a virtuous action. Exactly. Right. Cur- right. Courage is a virtuous action, right? Um, but then on the other hand, courage is, courage regulates pain, right? It's, it is the, the virtuous man's proper response to things that are naturally fearful. And so on one hand, courage is, is painful. And the the kind of quintessential example or the archetypal example that Aristotle gives of the object of the courageous man is death, right? The um, fear of death. And so it would seem that there's a problem here because now, now courage is, uh, is painful because death is by nature painful. So and terrible, terrible, terrifying to think about. Right, it's terrifying. not just physically painful. So we might just wonder how how is it possible that the virtuous man takes delight in virtue and simultaneously 
approaches something that is naturally painful, such as death, right? Does he take delight in in uh, facing death, especially in battle, right? This is this is kind of the, the example that Aristotle gives. What the, is this complicated being who feels pleasure <laughs> and pain at the same time? <laughs> this is the problem. Can this man? be resolved? <laughs> so we have this this problem, right? Uh-huh. Of the virtuous man going into battle facing death which is inherently a naturally fearful thing. Right. Because this is a courage, courageous man. This is a courageous man. Which must mean then that the decision he's made to risk his life is because he seeks some end which is truly good. Oh, now you're getting ahead. Truly fine. Now you're getting ahead. <laughs> it must mean that he actually decides it, right? Not out of compulsion, uh, simple fear, or That's right. even something merely natural. Um, but of a choice about what is right, even that somehow surpasses the danger entailed in doing what is right. And he likes doing this thing. So now just trying to get at all the parameters. We're we're getting, we're getting at the, what, what Aristotle will call kind of the active exercise of the virtue of courage and the end of courage. And those are two different things. Uh, and so, Let's uh, maybe we can go to the text here and kind of read a little bit of what Aristotle has to say and and kind of flesh out this okay. this problem because we're trying to find out why the courageous man is virtuous even though courage in essence involves pain. That's right. So right, another way to okay. put it is why is the why is the courageous man virtuous if right. he feels pain? So if he was virtuous, wouldn't he just? No matter how terrifying what he was doing, maybe it would be terrifying to us, but for him, he's just down. He yeah. just loves it. Yeah. He's just eating it up. Well, no problems. <laughs> Isn't that what courage is? Right. And it's, well, so it's on one hand. No, it's not for Aristotle. Well, right. But, but it is confusing, right? Because even when he, he first discusses courage, when he first brings mm-hmm. it up mm-hmm. in book two. Right. He acts this way. Right. He says that. Uh, if the virtuous man stands firm against terrifying situation and enjoys it, or at least does not find it painful, mm-hmm. he is brave. Yeah, there you go. You get a little chink in the chain there, though. That's weird. Or at least does not find it painful. Sure. <laughs> that's, a, that's a serious uh, demotion. But he right? says if he finds it painful, right. he is cowardly. I know. But to say that pleasure doesn't even have to be involved, just not pain. Oh, Sure. Sure. Is pretty far from saying the virtuous man enjoys something pleasant. Right. So we already do realize that there's something different. Yeah. Yeah. And part of this is the casualty of a of beginning the discussion of virtue in more, at closer, which maybe the very nature of virtue is closer to mm-hmm. question of pleasure and pain generally, which maps onto the virtue of temperance. Sure. Which is the virtue that more directly concerns and considers pleasures and pains, right? And in a very simple way that the temperate person, mm-hmm. right, takes his pleasures are for good things and he doesn't do the viceful. Not only does he not do viceful things, right? Is it viceful Illicit or sex, vice, things full of vice. <laughs> no, it's, I think those are different. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. But maybe I'm making shit up. <laughs> so no, no longer does he take take part take a part in vices, um, but he doesn't want to do them anyway. They wouldn't be pleasant to him. That's right. So 
But now we get to courage, which screws it all up. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, and and so we we do want to, um, yeah. Let's maybe let's go to the text here, just so that we can pay close attention to the distinction that Aristotle is making. Yeah. Would that be okay? Yeah. With you? Yep. 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 All yep. Right. You want to open open up your chapters now? That's the sound of pages turning. It's a very crunchy book. <laughs> Okay, so this is book three, chapter nine, and I'm using uh, the. It's translated by Terence Irwin, my particular version. You've got another one over there. Yeah, my guy is Martin Ostwald. You know what? I just realized. I think we should go back for a hot second because I didn't even tell our audience what courage is. That's important. That is kind of important. Well, we kind of talked about it, but we didn't talk about it in terms of the a excess and between two means. Okay, we're going to st- take a step step back here just okay. for a moment. Mm-hmm. I'm going to kind of briefly go through what Aristotle delineates for us. And this begins most specifically in chapter six of book three. So he talks about how uh, courage is a is the mean between the deficiency of cowardice and the excess of rashness. Okay. And the mean is not, it's not a perfect, uh, a perfect middle, right? Uh, Most of the virtues kind of err, error. I don't really know how to say that word on, on one side of the spectrum. And in this case for courage, it, it errs on the side of rashness. Uh, For temperance, it's not, it's not the case. Temperance, on the side of its deficiency, that's closer to its deficiency, which is insensibility as opposed to its Okay, so what we mean to say then is either it looks this way or is this way that when people act, say, on the battlefield rashly, it might look a lot more like the courageous thing because they go and and they fight. But maybe a sign of rashness is that the, the person easily gets killed in this action because it was also stupid or it just wasn't worth it. These things wouldn't count as courage. But on the other hand, somebody who cowers, pees the pants, doesn't do (laughs) anything, that looks or is less like courage than rashness. But neither are courage. Sure. Courage seems to be some middle ground where um, the person... Uh, does go forth and fight, and he does risk something, but the risk is somehow worth it. Um, you know, he he only lay, is going to risk his life for something that's truly good, and he does so under the right motivational impetus as well. For instance, it doesn't just well, he doesn't want to just please others in terms of how he looks. Um, there's something more at stake. Yeah, and so you're you're getting at specifically. Uh, the example that Aristotle gives to talk about courage, which we did mention already, which is death and battlefield, kind of facing that possibility. Right. And so, <clears throat> which is interesting because I do think that the way courage is most often spoken of, it is in regard to anything that one might fear. And Aristotle does talk about, you know, well, it seems like you're acting courageously when you're... Uh, overcoming, uh, he said, what, the, the fear of losing your reputation or 
or dishonor or thing, things of that nature. But uh, he says this is not properly courage. And a lot of that has to do, again, with what is um, what is naturally painful, right? What is naturally painful? And he says the most painful thing would be death and uh, the fear of death, right? Well, and there's another dimension, too. Oh, sure. Not right. just what's naturally painful, but also what is within your... Um, with within your control to approach, right? So are some things that are naturally fearful, um, but they could sort of happen to anyone, and it's for all of us to have to deal with it. So, for instance, uh, sickness right. That's good. or, um, you know, being threatened by a storm in a ship, right? He says, you know, there may be some courage involved in living up to those things, but it's not the cor- courageous, noble death uh, taken up by choice. That's right. For instance, mm-hmm. with the hero on the battlefield, because well, you're in that situation anyway if you're sick, and maybe it's just the best thing to deal with it is with some courage. You know, it makes more sense, but it isn't. It doesn't uh, show forth as much this uh, positive willingness um, to do something good and risk and risk something important as does the battlefield courage. Right. Even though I think Aristotle does not think necessarily that battlefield courage is the highest form, which is a very controversial statement, but he says mm. things indicating that all over mm-hmm. book three, and I think it's to make us wonder. Mm-hmm. Well, I and um, I couldn't help think of Socrates, for example, right. when, he, when he's talking about, moreover, we act like brave men on occasions when we can use our strength or when it is fine to be killed. And neither of this, anyway, oh, right, and neither of this is true. These is true when we perish from ship, shipwreck or sickness. So anyway, this, when he says, when it is fine to be killed, uh, that phrase right there is, um, can be applied to more than just battle, battlefields. Of course. You know, courage. That's so. right, right. The main thing is that death is obviously, a, a, that life is such a extreme good that times when we're willing to risk that for something truly good seem mm-hmm. to be the best examples of courage. Right. Exactly. So self-sacrifice. Right. Literally. Right. And so uh, he goes through a couple of uh, variations of, um, he says, condition, right, conditions that resemble courage or bravery. So and this is in, in chapter eight. You know, he'll talk about um, if you approach the battlefields because you are um, fearing punishment this is not courage because there are you're you're not doing it for the end that right because the virtuous man necessary. chooses virtue for its own sake for its own sake right the, mm-hmm. and the sake of the fine right mm-hmm. and so uh, fearing punishment is not sufficient you might approach the battlefields because you are he you know he says you might be a professional soldier you know you think of the guardians of the republic uh, but he says these these men often if they find um, the war, uh, a complete failure. They will run away from battle because they know their strength uh, can't do anything to obtain victory in obtaining victory. And so he says these these men are also not uh, courageous because the the kind of the what motivates their courage is their own strength, not the good of of courage itself. Right. Well, and also just the same problem exists with them as did in some ways, somebody who was courageous out of fear of it being shameful not to be courageous, right? right. 
because, well, the reason that they might be in the war is because of, well, the warlord or whatever political situation they're in. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's mitigated and less true that they have chosen this act since they are hired soldiers. It's their job, which doesn't mean they can't have genuine courage, but there is grounds for questioning it, right? Mm -hmm. Because they better fight. It's their job, right? And he even goes so far to say that the, um, it would be better for hired soldiers to not have, uh, to not have courage, um, because, uh, since courage is a, an aspect of the virtuous man and the virtuous man's life is the best, it's much more of a trepidation and a terror for the virtuous man to get rid of his life because his life is really a good thing. <laughs> so he thinks That's that, <laughs> uh, hired hand, like professional soldiers should, you shouldn't want them to actually have courage or necessarily actually have virtue because those aren't the people you would want to lose. Yeah. You'd want people who are more willing to <laughs> get rid of their life right. for something for, for some other cause than their own virtue. Right. Which is another, I think really significant jab at the idea that the, uh, the highest manifestation of courage is where you're willing to die on the battlefield. Right. Um, not saying it's not mm-hmm. for Aristotle, and I think we have we have to be thinking about Achilles here. Sure, this is there the Greek culture, um, the hero, mm-hmm. the battlefield hero. In some ways, is the highest being, the most beautiful being. Right. Although, I yeah, think Aristotle and, and I think with that. Well, let's go on. Well, and Homer is mentioned here too, in in the terms of uh, in terms of. Uh, spiritedness also being counted as bravery. And so, and, and this is kind of just the um, rashness, right? Rashness kind of appears to also be bravery because people drive, um, right. drive themselves into battle full of this kind of, um, uh, you know, aroused strength and spirit. That's right? good. And that gets that, blood. that gets that the distinction of where our passion or our motivation is coming from when we do an action, right? So if it's the same action externally, right? The hero comes and kills the foe and does it out of the risk, risking his life, maybe does lose his life, right? However, if somebody does that because of the passion for honor, right? Um, which has to do with the spirited aspect of the soul. That is something, um, uh, that's not even fully capable of feeling the fine. It's not what that aspect of our body is for. Um, There's a disorder there. Yeah, that it's that's going to be less than the one who takes delight in something beautiful or good, and that's why they act courageously. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So that that's uh, just some examples of uh, of things that look like courage, but are not quite courage. Uh, so maybe we can turn over now to, to chapter nine. So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, from this chapter and we'll try to figure out what Aristotle is telling us here. Right. As we said then, standing firm against what is painful makes us call people brave. That is why bravery, bravery is both painful and justly praised. Since it is harder to stand firm against something painful than to refrain from something pleasant. Nonetheless, 
the end that bravery aims at seems to be pleasant, though obscured by its surroundings. Okay, so one thing, uh, so I think he's making a kind of distinction there between courage and temperance, right? So courage is harder in a certain sense than temperance because it's more difficult to stand firm against what is painful than to restrain, refrain from something pleasant. Sure. And then um, now now we're getting to the, the part of the end. What is the end of, of courage? Um, and he says, this seems to be pleasant, right? Mm-hmm. And if the end of courage is pleasant, um, then why does the courageous man still fear or feel pain, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So this is what happens in athletic contests. Contests. For boxers find that the end they aim at, the crown and the honors, is pleasant. But being made of flesh and blood, they find it distressing and painful to take the punches and to bear all the hard work. And because there are so many of these painful things, the end, being small, appears to have nothing pleasant in it. Okay, so this is, again, a distinction between the active exercise of boxing being painful but the crown and honors is pleasant. And I think this, this did, when I first read this, it, the, the example of the boxers really helped because it would really see, it would seem something very unnatural for the courageous man, for the boxers to take pleasure in the, the punches, right? The, the feeling of their, um, flesh and, and blood just, uh, under this distress. Mm-hmm. Um, so Aristotle wants to maintain, no, this is painful and rightly so, even to the excellent boxer and even to the courageous man. Um, and there is an end that is pleasant and it's different from the, the, right. the exercise. So in short, it sounds like the whole anatomy of a virtuous action is more complicated than it might seem to the extent that uh, it no longer makes sense just to say, well, is the action pleasant or painful because an action is composed of many parts and which part are we referring to when we say it's pleasant or painful? Cause now we have, and in the beginning of chapter three, Aristotle did quite literally look into what goes into virtuous action. He talks about choice, he talks about deliberation, and he talks about means, and he talks about ends. And all of those things are involved in virtuous action. And so he says that when we uh, choose a virtuous action, we deliberate among the means, right? But but we have a wished-for end, which is why we're deliberating about those means. So when we say the, the, the boxer courageously took hits on the face, we mean that he did so because he wished to win, not that he wished to get hit in the face. Exactly, right. Um, and this gets to another point about virtuous action is that from the perspective of the agent, it's the things within his control and knowledge that we really look to when we ask what was he doing. Mm-hmm. To, and, and for lack of a better way of putting it, in what sense did he merit, you know, some, some kind of praise for this? Because the, for instance, the person on the battlefield, 
if he decided to put foes in harm's way so that it was more difficult, that's not courage, that's absurdity, right? In some sense, the things that risk his life are accidental to the fact that he wants something so bad that if those things come up, right. he will risk it. But they're not the things he wishes for. Sure. They're rather means that he deliberates about and chooses for the sake of some end, which is pleasant. Right. Now, psychologically, can you take pleasure in that end while you're facing the pain? And that's the question that I want to get to, because I do think it it is really important. And that was really helpful in distinguishing between, again, means and ends, Mm -hmm. what you're choosing, what's the object of your choice. So those are all very important. I'm going to, I'm going to finish uh, reading two more paragraphs here and then we'll, um, we'll just, we'll, we'll discuss. Mm -hmm. And so if the same is true for bravery, the brave person will find death and wounds painful and suffer them unwillingly, but he will endure them because that is fine or because failure is shameful. So that's again, what you mentioned, which is that he suffers the wounds and the wounds, uh, unwillingly, but he does will for some other end. Mm-hmm. Indeed, the truer it is that he has every virtue, and the happier he is, the more pain he will feel at the prospect of death. For this sort of person, more than anyone, finds it worthwhile to be alive, and knows he is being deprived of the greatest good. And this is painful. Now, the greatest good here I do think is a little bit difficult on, to understand for me. Um, maybe you could help me out here. But at first... I, I think the the part of the what the greatest good mm-hmm. <laughs> could be mm-hmm. is his life, um, and his yeah. life is is uh, a virtuous life, right? And so he has he takes <laughs> Alex is uh, really getting comfortable here. <laughs> it's important for his mind, you know. Apparently, he has I'm his methods. Yeah, go on, go on. You're so far from the microphone. Um, Sorry. <laughs> So, uh, right. So the, the greatest good I, I think here is, is his life and that it is a life worth living. So, right. So losing it's this It's funny that Aristotle says that. Mm, and why? I think even... <laughs> What's the joke? Even a kind of contradiction, right? Because if the, the sumum bonum is a good life in that literal sense, that is to say the kind of life that can die physically, Mm -hmm. then it would seem that courage in which the stakes are risking one's life is impossible and absurd because that would mean that the end isn't, doesn't persist or is not higher than the means risked for the end. Yes. And so I think that, I think what Aristotle means by that is, uh, is a category of goods. That is to say goods that we have in the manner of a possession or even externally, right? Like our lives, like that is the highest good. Is it the good? Sure. Is it the thing that the virtuous man aspires after? Does Aristotle think that the, that the soul is, is eternal, right? Incorruptible. Um, it seems that, and you could debate this, right? That courage wouldn't make sense without that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it seems like 
the virtuous man's not thinking about that. It's just the, it might be the right thing to do to risk one's well, life. And another way so. I wonder if you could put this is, so if the virtuous man does not face death in battle and he's being asked to do so by his country or whatever it is, then he will be a coward. And so he will lose his greatest good, which is the virtuous life. Does that make sense? There, I mean, right, there's another right, right. there's another way of seeing. So you're saying that virtue, uh, even courage, can be negatively motivated by not wanting to negatively motivated, but still by by the the love of the 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 good of the fine. Right, right. right. You like you wouldn't be able to live with oneself if you didn't do this. Thing. Right. Um, but you may that that may be in contrast to whether you actually see it as beautiful. You can, say that it might be in contrast. What thing? Well, as positively beautiful, the action of courage. Okay. Because if you're trying to avoid what will no longer be a beautiful life because you didn't be courageous, yeah. Then that doesn't. There's not a lot of positivity there in the courageous act itself. Whereas another form of courage might be that you truly in in the moment. Or in the scenario, right, right. see how this is really the beautiful thing to do. And in fact, it's so desirable yeah. that you be this hero right. and that you uh, do this good thing, um, that yeah. that's what's on your mind. So do you think that is, are those Maybe two, those are always go together. Right. That's what course. I'm wondering. That's what I'm wondering. It's, I don't think they're necessarily intention though. I, I would imagine... Aristotle's thinking more positively in the way you're saying. Yeah. Well, this also brings up the question about whether courage is the highest kind of virtue or the best way to examine virtue. Yeah. And I think you could make a good argument that it is and a good argument that it isn't. Oh, okay. And the reason it I have an argument isn't, why it is. to me, yeah, sure. seems like because um, uh, courage seems to always require a, situa- a situation of conflict, which the virtuous man wouldn't choose to exist if he could have it so, right? Sure. So, um, if, for example, our, uh, you know, world geopolitics and statecraft were in a healthy uh, place, then maybe there would be no warfare and thus nothing, no need for courage. But there would still be uh, a place for other virtues, mm-hmm. especially temperance. Um, mm-hmm. it, that is to say, not in terms of like what you don't do or in moderation. Right. And, uh, and the same with prudence. That is to say, these the positive love of what's good, being a reflection of the good person. Mm-hmm. That can still exist where situations that require courage maybe won't always exist. Yeah, no, that is interesting. But I, I should say, I don't actually have an example of why it's the best uh, virtue at all. <laughs> That's not what I was thinking, but I have an example, mm-hmm. uh, an argument for why um, it brings up some really important things about Aristotle's understanding of virtue, which yeah. we've already touched on. But yeah. let me finish Everybody reading Everybody debates about this in philosophy in general. About what? Which virtue? Is the best. Is the best. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, every now, every so often, another thinker comes along and says, right. "No, no, no, it's prudence. No, it's temperance. No, yeah. it's courage. Right. No, it is justice. Right. It is confusing. These yeah. hinge virtues. Yeah. Or virtues. Are, which ones are just no, another word for all of them? Right. You might right. say that courage is an essential aspect of any virtue. Right. At right. any given 
time. They're, they're always inseparable. Yeah, inseparable. yeah. Yeah. So. so okay. Well. So let me finish reading this. So. Let's see. For this sort of person, more than anyone, finds it worthwhile to be alive and knows he is being deprived of the greatest goods, and this is painful. But he is no less brave for all that. Presumably, indeed, he is all the braver because he chooses what is fine in war at the cost of all these goods. It is not true, then, in the case of every virtue, that its active exercise is pleasant. It is pleasant only insofar as we attain the end. Last section here. But presumably it is quite possible for brave people, given the character we have described, not to be the best soldiers. Perhaps the best will be those who are less brave, but possess no other good, for they are ready to face danger, and they sell their lives for small gains. And he ends with so much for bravery, it is easy to grasp what it is in outline, at least, from what we have said. He seems very dissatisfied with himself. <laughs> yeah. So much for bravery. So, okay, right. here's a question, and I, I know you'll have some, some thoughts on this. Uh, because you wrote your uh, paper on on the Aragon argument here, so a paper, your paper, your, your my paper. one paper that I ever wrote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. no, no, no. Uh, that's right. So this brings up something something interesting. So uh, in the case of the boxer, right? The boxer acts for the sake of this crown, the crown of honor, right? Uh, now, that is a fundamentally, fundamentally different way of understanding the end of boxing as opposed to the end of courage. Because, uh, when, when Aristotle says that the courageous man acts for the sake of what is fine, right? The cologne, mm-hmm. the fine, the, mm-hmm. the, the beautiful, mm-hmm. the good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as if, the courageous person gets this prize at the end, right? This this is not an argument necessarily for the afterlife. I'm not saying he Aristotle doesn't believe in that, but that that's not necessarily here, right? So that no. when mm-hmm. Aristotle says the courageous man acts for the sake of the fine, it's not like he's going to get a little crown at the end, right? And and the fact that this is um, that he brings up this uh, the cologne in the context of death, right? So that the courageous person acts for the sake of what is fine, it seems to imply that the end is somehow present in the activity. Right. If he does it for its own sake. Right. If he does it for its own sake. And yet it seems the end is in the future somehow. Exactly. Or is that true? Right. Well, that's what I'm Because then it can't be there. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. If the end is something after... Mm-hmm. The activity, then the courageous man won't ever get it because he'll, he's dead. <laughs> yeah. You know, mm-hmm. so it, it seems like a perfect example of how the end of virtue is in its own activity. Right. right. Well, so right. now, and let me, um, just add one more thing here. And so this does come up, um, in, so when, when we think of, uh, production and activity, um, and you can say more about this, but I was just going to mention quickly that, uh, Aristotle gives two examples when he's talking about the um, the proper activity or the work of a human being. He you know he kind of asks is is man's proper function or work um, like a carpenter? So we see you know the kind of carpenter's production we see it in a um, in in his product right. We can point to that chair and say this was the end. This is the product of the of the carpenter's work. Or is it more like a flautist right that 
we can't just point to the song that the flautist plays. We have to see her working um, in order to hear what she is producing, right? So you think of uh, Yeats' poem, you know, how can you tell the dancer from the dance? There's a distinction between what the flautist produces and her activity, but there's not a separation. And so my question mm-hmm. is really, you know, he, when we're talking about courage, it seems that there's something similar going on here, right? So that the, the end of courage is, is pleasurable. It's the cologne. It's the fine, right? That the courage man takes delight in that. And that's how we can kind of square it with everything else that Aristotle has said about, about the pleasure of virtue. Mm-hmm. Simultaneously, there is the kind of activity of courage um, being, you know, its, its exercise is painful insofar as, as it's concerned with what is naturally painful. Um, but mm-hmm. these things are happening simultaneously. So I don't know if that reconciles the problem necessarily because you still have kind of at the end of the day pleasure and pain happening simultaneously. But I don't know. I mean, maybe you can me- say something of, of the Aragon argument, but also well, as an athlete too, I mean, you probably experienced something similar in that, you know, is you feel pain in exercise. Yes, I was an athlete. We all need to discuss my career that yeah. ended abruptly as a high school cross-country runner. No, I mean... But I just think it's a good example. Yeah, sure, sure. No, and you know cross-country that- is probably one of the best, you know, running, long-distance running examples of yeah. enduring pain right. <laughs> for, but feel like for the there's, sake there's of weird the kind glory. Of pleasure in- yeah, yeah. Well, like, there's so many ways to cut this. I mean, we have, first of all, emotions, motivations, desires, experiences. They're never just one of those, mm-hmm. I think, at least regarding the kinds of actions that we're talking about, which are, which are beautiful and bring in the whole nature of the person, his choices, his, his ends, right? Um, this is why, for instance, Aristotle picks such a bodily example, I think, of someone who endures uh, pain. Because it makes it obvious that, does he mean that, our, uh, that what's going on with the body Mm-hmm. may not be the decisive question about what's going on with the soul right. and the person's intentions, exactly. right? And you can totally, and if you think of even the boxing scenario, you can totally conceive of the way in which a boxer is looking forward to a pleasure of winning, experiencing bodily pain, and is enjoying fighting. Yeah. Right? right. Mm-hmm. So, and I think this, again, gets at the complexity of action is, when Aristotle is talking about action, he's not talking about uh, sort of this external framework of what they're after, what they're doing. He's talking about in the person's soul, mm-hmm. what are they? What are they trying to get, and in and what are they experiencing as they're trying to get it? That's right. And in that sense, mm-hmm. we can think of a phenomenology of action, where mm-hmm. in a sense, uh, there's getting the win, and there's the process of winning, which the the champion loves. Right, he knows those as connected, and he's experiencing it as he could even, to in a certain extent, he may, it may even happen that the pain, his physical pains, become signs mm-hmm. of the the glorious things that he's doing. Right. right, I can't even I can't help but think of even the Christian martyrs who yeah, no, experienced sure. pleasure in horrific things, mm-hmm. 
by divine grace. Okay, but I think the point still stands that the righteousness of their activity so uh, consumed their motivations and and what what was possessing them right. that it even didn't stay contained in the end, but uh, overflowed yeah. over into exactly. the means, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but of course, Aristotle is, he's trying to wriggle out the sort of analytic uh, angles that, you know, and initially in an elemental way of what we're going to have to consider when we're yeah. thinking about action. So we come across these kind of yeah. problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, no, but he's given us everything we need, I think, mm-hmm. different parts of the soul, Remember, we, we take, he, he mentions the distinction between bodily pleasure, between, uh, the, the sort of pleasingness of the advantageous and the delight we take in things that are beautiful. And those are all different, right? We can have a sort of, uh, yeah, desire for something that is in general advantageous. And that is different than the delight in what is truly good. Right. Um, and so maybe those, you know, Mm-hmm. are different dimensions in which we feel pleasure and pain at the same time. Right. Because our soul right. has that capacity. But that element of the the end being present in the means, in the kind of uh, the being at work in the in the soul of virtue, I think you see it you see it everywhere in the ethics, obviously, but you even see it uh, you even see it in Plato. No, no surprise there. Mm-hmm. But I think of the the two ways in which Socrates categorizes Eros in the symposium. And he says the first way in which a soul might have Eros is mm-hmm. uh, by desiring that which it doesn't have. Mm-hmm. And then he says the second way is to desire what it has to continue into the future, mm-hmm. right? And so there's this kind of expansive element to Eros as well, that you can still uh, possess the object of your desire That's and right. still have Eros for it, right? Eros doesn't yeah. always mean mm-hmm. that you don't have it, right? And so I think there's a, that, that same motion is present in virtue, right? So that right. courageous man That's right. desires this end, but desires it to continue, especially because he has the fine, okay. right? Because he is the virtuous man. Right, right, right. And this gets in, I think, to the deeper metaphysics behind this vision of virtue that either Plato or Aristotle is having. Because for them, I think, this is e- easier to conceive with Plato, though, but, but also with Aristotle, the, what is beautiful about the virtuous life bears a definite resemblance or analogy to what is the beautiful, mm-hmm. right? Which may be an aspect of what he is not yet. In fact, and character does grow in this manner. The The person of um, who's growing in virtue does not sort of analytically, deliberately choose out every aspect of that growth and go for it. No, he does good things. And as that happened, Aristotle says in the manner that a disease progresses Mm. is kind of like the mysterious way in which virtue progresses, right? (laughs) Because as we become better, we desire better things. But before we're there, we don't, we don't even know what those are, right? Right. So there's a deep mystery uh, involved in the relationship between the good man and the good. And, and for that reason, I think you can kind of see why the, the courageous man is kind of spanning both of those 
There's something transcendent that he doesn't have that must be motivating him. Because mm-hmm. what he's getting is beating in the meantime. Right. On the other hand, he's learned to love being himself. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly the kind of thing he would do. Mm-hmm. And that's that itself is also pleasant. Right. That he's hanging on to who he is in the face of a danger. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So. No, that's great. And I think we're going to wrap it up here now. But uh, this, I mean, this discussion could go on forever. I, it really is... It's my favorite way this is of... the podcast that never ends. <laughs> that's a, that's a And it goes on and on. <laughs> my friends, Aristotle started singing it. <laughs> uh, exactly. No, no, no. But it is my, it's my favorite way of, of coming to the topic of Aristotle's ethics because it's, it's very clear that we, uh, we are confused about what virtue is. It's one of these words that's over-familiar to us. Um, and, and we use it in ways that, uh, have nothing to do with, with pleasure or happiness or the good life. And so it's, it's just helpful to, to put these things in, in a little bit of pressure, the pressure cooker in of pressure Aristotle. Cooker. Yeah, exactly. Aristotle's yeah. pressure cooker. That's what we'll yeah. call this podcast. Yeah. No, and I mean, if you have the time, read the ethics. I mean, read it a million times. Right on. You right have on. to, because you're not going to get it. Ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, That's a, but, a mean, professor at Belman Abbey, yeah. Dr. Cook, says that he he reads this book every year, even when he's not teaching it, and mm-hmm. he recommends that anyone else do the same. Shine, yeah. I think is a good yeah. practice. <laughs> yeah. But read it once, at least. Let's let's start with that. <laughs> but anyway, any uh, closing thoughts from Mr. Neff here? A word of warning? Well, I hope that the listeners enjoyed oh, this podcast. I hope it wasn't too painful. <laughs> but I'll forgive them if they did the right thing and listened to it, even if it was painful. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and, which actually does bring up the question of, because we're talking about virtue this way, does that mean we think exactly like Aristotle? I happen to not. Sure. At least and I actually debate some of these things quite a bit. Yeah. But I would say that I'm a little bit more skeptical of some of the ways this kind of thinking can can make a virtue seem like, for instance, the question with the wallets and the question with the, pia- the piano. Mm-hmm. Um, we put a little pressure on them; they get kind of confusing because you, <laughs> you ask someone who plays music, and they would say, "Well, the person who's enjoying it more, you can hear that joy." Sure, and it keys. sounds different. Well, yeah. this philosophic thing rules that out. No, what they did was exactly <laughs> the same, right? right? So, you know, there's something difficult about that, but also about, you know, isn't there something beautiful about doing what's right, even when it's really difficult? And I think that that, that's true. And even when it's really painful, obviously that's kind of what we were talking about. Um, but I think that, yeah, there's, there's more to the story. Absolutely. And Aristotle opens it up for, for, you know, there's, there's something really inconclusive about a lot of Aristotle's discussions uh in in the ethics you know he again we pointed to this earlier but you know he kind of always points to uh the virtuous man you know and but doesn't really give any concrete example of who that is <laughs> right 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 um so anyways this is all just to say that, that the question is we want not to close. cause you guys pain <laughs> by having more discussions about unrelated things right now. Exactly. Anyways. All right. Well, until next time, thanks for listening. Until next time. 
consider supporting mud-spattered philosophy in our effort to promote the great ideas of Western civilization. For more information, you can visit the Mud Spattered Philosophy Facebook page, shoot us an email at mudspatteredphilosophy at gmail.com, or visit our website at mudspatteredphilosophy.weebly.com. Thanks for tuning in.